We are in John chapter 8. If you will turn there, the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. We find ourselves in John 8, and that is putting us on the timeline of the last six months of the life of Christ on this earth. He is in Jerusalem at this point. He is at is what is called the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a once-a-year celebration in Jerusalem where they would gather all the Jewish males were required to be there to, to celebrate and to remember God's faithfulness in the wilderness, uh, to come together and for one week and from Sabbath to Sabbath and participate in various activities of celebration. Two of the events that were significant, two things they would do in the Feast of Booths that was very significant was, one, they would have the sacrifice of the water on the altar. Uh, They would go to the pool of Siloam. The priest would get some water, gather it up. The crowds were all around the priest as he would go up back up the mountain, excuse me, back up to the top, to the temple, and would put the water on the sacrifice as a thank offering to God for his provision of water in the wilderness and water for the present day crops that he had provided for. And the second great event of the Feast of Booze was when they would take and light the four giant candelabras in the court of the women. Huge candelabras. If you think of the Olympic torch that would shine, it's something of that nature that would shine the time in the evening and light up the whole city of Jerusalem, uh, reminding them of God's provision of uh, the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of fire that directed the people when they were in the wilderness. provisions, reminding them of the faithfulness of their God. And Jesus would seize on both of those opportunities. And the water, he would say, hey, I am a living water. You believe in me and your innermost being will be water flowing. He said that in John seven thirty seven. And then in John 8, 12, regarding the light, he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus takes those two great events of the Feast of Booze and he just captures the moment with the application to himself. I'm living water and I am the light of the world. And Jesus is saying controversial things or hearing him say these things and the opposition is just building up against him. And then he says this, notice in John 8, 24, he makes this astounding claim. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What in the world? You can die and pay for your own sins or you can trust me as the one who made payment for your sins. You understand that, don't you? When you hear Jesus died for sins, that word for is a very important word because it tells you that he is the substitute for sins. Jesus became sin for us. And you can die in your own sin or you can trust his death for your sin as payment And some people believed in him. We saw that last time. Notice in verse 30. Some people did believe in him. We see in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And I want to focus on these professing 
believers for a few moments this morning. If you were given the task to teach these new professing believers something, what would be what would be the most important thing you could think of that they would need to hear as new believers? You could say, well, you need to find a church, and that would be a good thing. You could say you need to love God, and that would be a good thing. You need to love others, and that would be a good thing. But notice what Jesus says to these professing believers in verse 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That's what Jesus said to them, to these professing believers. Be a man or a woman of my word. That's what he says. Whether you're a new believer or an old believer, that is what he would say. Be a man or woman of my word. Now, I would say this to you. Jesus is speaking to a mixed crowd in this passage. That's important for you to understand that because some things are going to be said by this crowd that he's speaking to that give you the indication that there are some unbelievers there. For example, um, we see in verse uh, 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. So I'm just saying it's a mixed crowd. And we've seen this before in the book of John. We saw it in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, when he's at the Passover in Jerusalem, at the feast, he's performing miracles, and it's said there, many believed in him. But Jesus was not believing in them. Those are added words, but that's what, it's, that's what it means. Jesus was not committing himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knows that everybody that says they believe that it's shallow or temporary or superficial or it's just because they saw a miracle and they're all excited about a miracle. He knows that people do that when they express belief. He knows that it's not a belief that remains. And so even in this crowd and even in this group that have professed believing in him, we see evidence that some of those very possibly were superficial. Some were real, but some were superficial. We saw it in John 6 as well, remember? His disciples Heard him say those hard words, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Talking about the total commitment required of those who would follow Christ. They heard those hard words and they walked with him no more. People like his works, they do not always like his words. And many had said in John 6, left him and followed him no more. So you have some in this crowd that want to kill him, as I pointed out from verse 27. And by the end of the chapter, many in this crowd are going to want to take stones and throw them at him. Look at the very end of the chapter when he says, before Abraham was, I am. See that very last verse? They wanted to pick up rocks and throw them at him. That's the kind of opposition he's starting to face, and it's going to be like that as we go all the way to the end. So professing believers but also some, crowd, some unbelievers in this crowd. In verses 31 and 32, you have, abide, you have that word abide. Um, it says, uh, 
If you continue in my word, it's the idea of abide in my word. It's the idea of remain in my word. It's the idea of living in my word. Um, It's the idea of uh, giving attention to my word. It's the idea that everything that I've said, logos is the word there, all of my teaching, you're to, all of these words that I have been saying, These people came to faith, if you remember and you've been with us in John chapter 8, these people came to faith because they heard the words of Jesus and they believed the words of Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, the way you start, get this folks, the way you start is the way you finish. You follow me? You start by hearing and it's that hearing that brings faith to the true believer And you continue in how you started. You continue in the Word. This is very, very important. If the Word has done its initial work in you, then you continue in it. The greatest evidence that the Word did the initial work in you is that you continue in it. Faith is a gift. We hear the Word. Faith comes by hearing. We hear the Word of God. It's preached, it's proclaimed to us. We embrace it. We start a new life in Christ. And what keeps that new life in Christ going is the word of God. He says, you are truly my disciples. We're going to see that in a few moments. True followers do not just hear it, believe it, and sit down and do nothing. True believers don't just hear it, believe it, and forget about it. True believers don't just hear it and believe it and act like they never heard it. True believers, he says, continue in my word. If you want to turn there, you can, but Colossians 2, 6, and 7, Paul probably never heard these, Jesus say these exact words, but Paul says it this way. Therefore, get this in verse 6, Colossians 2, 6, therefore, as you have received Christ... Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? The word, so walk, walk with him in his word. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. As you received it is how you continue. That's the point. You guys have all been sitting here listening to me, Jesus says, and you say you believe. Now continue in the word. You continue to walk. You heard it. You read it. Someone may have preached it to you. You came to faith, but that's not the end. You continue as you received it. Here's a good verse. 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again not of seed which is perishable. That new life in you is not a perishable seed. It's an imperishable seed. It's the living and enduring word of God, Peter says. Then he goes into chapter 2 saying, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. That is a living word in you. It does not die. If the living word is in you, it's, it's alive. And it hungers for milk. It hungers like a baby hungers for milk. A true believer hungers for milk. 
Peter says in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. So the seed that starts the Christian life is not just an initiating seed. It's a, get this, a sustaining seed. It sustains you. It sustains you. It starts the Christian life. It continues the Christian life. This is important, folks. This is an important sermon this morning. Important. Why is it important? Why is the word important? Came across this list. I thought I got to share this with you this morning. This is a great list of why the word of God is important to us. You might want to write these down. It gives you a knowledge of God. Understand that. Why, why is the word of God important? Because it gives you a true knowledge of God. Listen to Proverbs 2. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you and make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift, up, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God left to myself I would just come up with a God of my own understanding I would just come up with a God that I like I would just come up with a God that fits my lifestyle I would just come up with a God that I think just is is the kind of God he should be rather than the kind of God that he is That's what we would do. Folks, general revelation tells me there is a God, but special revelation, the Bible, tells me what that God is like and how I can know him. I can go out there and look at the clouds and look at the mountains, mountains, which you do not see in Florida, by the way, but things like that. Go and just look at a beautiful sky. I can look at those things and I can say, God is. There is a God. There is a creator. But that general revelation where God has revealed himself in his creation is not enough to tell me anything about him and doesn't do anything in how I can get to know him. I need special revelation for that. The Bible tells me what that true God is like and how I can get to know him. You know, it amazes me sometimes when I hear of Christians, people who profess to be Christians, getting taken in by Mormonism. I get amazed because all that tells me is they don't know their Bible. They don't know the doctrine of God. They don't know who God is. They teach polytheism. They teach multiple gods. The God of the Bible is one. Three persons, as Dr. Ware told us, but one God. I would know that if I did not have the Word of God. Special revelation. Secondly, stimulates worship. The reason the Word of God is important to me as a Christian is because it stimulates worship. It produces salvation and it sustains worship. You know, the deeper that we as a church go into this book the higher our worship goes. Do you know that? Because we all start to sing the songs with greater meaning because we know the God we're singing about. We know the truths about the God we're singing about. We're affirming what the Word says about God when we worship. The more we go into this book and the deeper we get into this book, the the higher our worship. 
not superficial. It's not built based on feelings. It's based on knowledge and understanding of who God is, and we praise him for that knowledge of who he is. Psalm 119, I turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. The word, Psalm 119, produces reverence for God. I need God's word. I need God's word. I need God's word to tell me what God is like. I need God's word to stimulate worship in me. Thirdly, in this list that was provided to me, God gives divine wisdom for making daily decisions. Listen, you need this. You need this. You make decisions all day long. Who do you consult for your decisions? You make important decisions all day long. Where do you go? Where do you look? Do you lean on your own understanding? Do you look for mystical messages? Mystical messages? This feels right? This seems right to me. God, there's too much God told me this and God told me that going around. And it's not anchored in the Bible anywhere. Too many messages that people have and, and you'll say, well, the Bible doesn't say that. And they'll say, does not matter, God told me. Folks, you need to run from that and you need to watch out for that yourself. If you have impressions from God, great. You must make sure they're rooted in this book. People do all kinds of things because they feel like it and feel like God would want them to do that. And then when it doesn't work out, they blame God for it. Understand that. There's a lot of darkness and a lot of confusion And I need Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's Psalm 119, 105 and Psalm 19, verse 7. I need Christ, I need Christ's wisdom to correct my simplicity every day. Fourthly, the, the, the word teaches us to evaluate the world and life correctly. Listen, you need a lens. You need a lens to see this world correctly. You need to be able to interpret what's going on all around us through the eyes of God's word. Bruce Ware did a phenomenal job with that last Friday night in this auditorium. I encourage you to listen to that. But you need to be able to evaluate the world and life correctly the world is continuing continually see, uh, feeding us definitions of morals the world is continually feeding us misinformation about what our values should be and when the world doesn't get it wrong then my own flesh manages to get in there too I need, I need a lens to see it all through. I need a way, I need the means by which, I, I, the grid I need to see and interpret what's going on around me and be able to interpret the philosophies that I hear and the teachings the world is throwing at me and all of those things. It comes in my face every day just like it does yours. I need, I need something. I need God's word. 
Only the Word of God can keep you thinking sanely and keep you on track. Listen to Psalm 119, 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. I need that. We got some smart enemies. I need to be wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. Understand this, folks. The world is not our friend. It is not our friend. Anti-God thinking is not our friend. And it's always coming at us. And the world has an agenda. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he has an agenda. And he wants to trip you and me up. And the only way to stay safe is to inoculation of the word of Christ. Verse, uh, the fifth one, guard from sin. How can a young man keep his way pure, Psalm 119 says? By keeping it according to your word. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Keeps me from straying. Keeps me from straying into sin. I'm, my heart, like your heart, is prone to wander. It's prone to wander off the path. I need to be brought back all the time. I need to repent almost every day of something. Repentance is the way of life for the believer. It's not a one-time thing. It restores you when you get discouraged. Psalm 119.25, my soul cleaves to the dust. Can you get any lower than that? My soul cleaves to the dust. That is low, right? In the dust. Face in the dust. Revive me. According to your word. Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Hmm. The word of Christ did its work. It transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He transformed me. But he keeps walking with me. Because life is, life is hard. You are going to have tribulations and trials in this life. You live in a fallen world and you live in fallen flesh and you are going to go through trials and difficulties in your own, the the flesh, the world, the devil. You got all these fronts. You're going to face it every single day. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. The reason Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is because it's hard. It's hard. We have been lulled in America in evangelical Christianity for too long, thinking it's just easy and culturally acceptable to be a Christian. That is changing rapidly. We are in for some difficult days ahead. I believe that. I want to prepare our church to think like that, to stand firm in the midst of that, to recognize that the prosperity we may feel is so easily lulls us into thinking everything is going to always be okay and it's not I believe we are in danger of lulling ourselves into a sleep to sleep and failing to be sober minded and awake we only recognize that we do are going to face discouraging and difficult times in the days ahead persecution all of the things that go with that you're not going to be liked You're not going to be appreciated for your views. 
If you haven't already experienced that, you will. And finally, he gives, the word gives us stability. Psalm 119, 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Life has got stumbling blocks. The word is my torch. The word is what helps me navigate through this world. Listen, those are just some benefits, not some benefits necessarily, it's just why the word is important, why the word is so important to us. Let's go back to our passage. Back to the passage in John chapter eight. We should continue exactly as we started. That's what we see Jesus saying in 31 and 32. John 8, 31, look at it again. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. This is how you're going to confirm you are a true disciple. Assurance is bolstered by continuing. Understand that. You lack assurance, ask yourself, well, have I been continuing? And if I'm not continuing, why am I not continuing? Did I continue? Did I ever continue? Up until now, we've been given no test of true faith in the Bible. Nothing in the book of John has given us a test of true faith. Here it is in John 8, 31 and 32, the test of true faith. This confirms you to be a true disciple, truly disciples of mine, true learners. It gives me assurance as I see myself continuing after salvation. Even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, I continue. You've been there, I've been there, I just can't keep going on. And for some reason, I keep going on. It's, uh, Christ is my teacher, and, but it's, the, it's a test of true faith. The nature of true faith is it endures. The nature of true faith is it perseveres. It doesn't give up. It continues. I, make a, I, I say this many times because I think it is a big issue in American Christianity, and, and that is that there are people that think there are Christians sitting in pews, and they're not. I say that quite often from this pulpit, but folks, it's because the Bible says it so much. Matthew 7, 21, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that for you and your name. Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Further in Matthew chapter 7, the wise man is the man who hears the word of God and acts on it. The foolish man is the man who hears the word of God and doesn't act on it. The wise man is the man who hears the word of God, acts on it, builds his house, his spiritual house, on a foundation that is strong, that when the judgment comes, that house will still be standing. The foolish man is the man who hears the word of God, doesn't establish any foundation of true faith, Builds his house, judgment comes, he's blown away. Then you see it again in Matthew chapter 13, the soils, the different soils. The word of God is thrown out there. It lands on different heart conditions, the stony heart, the rocky heart, the hard heart, producing no fruit. They give indication that something happened, but they believe only for a while, Luke says, and they believe no more. Only one heart does it actually take root in and bear fruit. You saw it in John chapter 6. Many of his disciples, former believers, believed in him no more. John, 1 John 2, 19. They were with us, but they left us. Why did they leave us? Because they were not of us. They were there for a while, and now they're gone. You've seen that. 
People excited about it go to camp, go to a conference, go to this, go to that. They're excited and you see them no more. I'm not talking about they got to come to our church, but they don't go to any church. They don't go anywhere. You see it in Hebrews 10.38. Don't be those who shrink back to destruction. That you were once there and now you're back here because you shrunk back. Matthew 13, again, the wheat and the tares growing up in the church. The kingdom of God will be like this. You will have those who look like believers, sound like believers, talk like believers, but they're not believers. Wheat and tares growing side by side in the church. So I know I say much about that, but look at those references. It's all over the place. Jesus talked about it all the time because it's such a reality. It's a reality, and it's in our church, and it's in every church. That's the kingdom of God during this age. Wheat and tares. John 14 says, if you have my commandments and keep them, then you're the ones who love me. Wow. He says that about three times in John 14. Indication being, if you have my commandments and don't keep them, you don't really love me. I don't care what you say about me. He says it in 1 John this way. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. We know, folks, a profession of faith or some past experience does not make you a Christian. I said this in our new members class this morning. Does not make you a Christian. Get past that. Quit pointing back to some back event. Stop. Don't put your hope and trust in that. What's right now look like? What's this very moment look like? The second benefit, the first benefit, you will know that you truly belong to him. That's the first benefit of continuing in his word in John 31. I didn't make that point, but that is the first benefit. You will know that you are my disciple. You will know that you truly belong to me. The second benefit is you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. Wow. You will know the truth. Folks, there are so many truth alternatives out there right now in this world. Things that distract you away from the real truth. There is philosophy. Philosophy, it offers truth but proves to be empty over and over again. Read the life of the philosophers if you want to see some empty lives. Empty deception. Psychology. Just all, you know what psychology does? It just turns you to yourself. And you want to know something that's really empty? Is you looking at you all the time. That's empty. That's a bottomless pit. Gets you nowhere. It's sinful. You need to repent of it if that's your preoccupation. You always to be looking toward God and toward others. Political systems offer truth. Do you know that political systems have been offering utopia for centuries? Are, are we there yet? No. They can't deliver. They can't deliver that. We know closer. Science doesn't even try to offer truth anymore. It just provides analysis of a facts, but it never provides truth. Technology says, I will make life easier, and believe me, it does make life easier, but you have to admit, it also creates new problems. 
It does. These are all truths that are out there. Success and, and pleasure offer truth. Uh, like Solomon would tell you, bait and switch. I sought pleasure, vanity. It was empty. I had all the women. I had all the money. I had all the possessions anybody could ever want. The end of all things, vanity of vanities. I was empty. Listen. Truth that's not anchored in the soul. Truth is not outside of you. Truth must be inside of you. Truth that is anchored in the soul. If you continue in my word, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thy word is truth. Must be anchored in the soul. Things outside of me don't ever touch my soul. I need something to touch in here where I'm so discontent and unhappy I need something to touch this. I need that truth. Don't give me the superficial things that don't deliver. Give me the truth that goes here. It gets anchored in here. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. This, his word delivers what my soul longs for. I continue in his word. The third benefit is it will make you free, free. Freedom sets you free. Wow. Freedom. Freedom. We all want freedom. They get confused when he says this. Notice verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they're thinking external, okay? I think what they're talking here, and you can read commentaries, and they're going to give you some different ideas what might be on their mind, but I don't think we're all that disagree that much. I would just simply say I think they had in mind, you're talking about slaves. We're not slaves to anybody. And in a sense, and that was true, they weren't slaves. They're thinking of freedom because you're talking about a nation, an empire that is just two-thirds slaves. Roman Empire. But they're not slaves. We're not, we're, we are descendants of Abraham, and we're not, we're not under enslaved to anyone. And so in social terms, they are free men. They could have been thinking about political freedom, but that would be a lie because they've been dominated by every empire that's ever come on the scene. Assyrians and Babylonians and Greeks and, and Egyptians and now Romans. So that wouldn't be true. So they might, must be thinking of it that way, but nonetheless, they're thinking of something external, not how Jesus means it. They're thinking of being slaves as property. They're thinking of not being free as, and being as, because they're property of somebody else. Verse 34, Jesus corrects them. He says, every, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not your external situation. I'm talking about your internal situation. I'm talking about the worst oppression there is, and that is sin. The sin that destroys your relationships, the, the sins that, that, that corrupt your lives, the sins that, sin that causes you to be separated from God. I'm talking about the worst oppression there is, and that is sin. You're a slave to that. Leads to guilt, leads to hell. As I read this, and I've been thinking about this. Because he says in that verse, he says in that verse, 
Everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin, and that is true. We are slaves to sin. I cannot not sin. I mean, I can't. Until I became a Christian, I cannot not sin. And, and it's still in my nature to want to sin. I still do sin. But as we progress in the Christian life, it sins less but not sinless. But the point is, you can be engaged in certain sins that absolutely become life-dominating sins. You know that? You know this. The world would call that an addiction. The world would call that that you are an addicted person and that you are controlled by a sin that dominates you completely and totally. I don't like the word addiction. I like the word enslavement. I like the word life-dominating sin because we all understand what that means. There's no hope in the word you're you're an addict. There's no hope in that word whatsoever. That sounds like a label that just will never go away. But for the Christian... I can be enslaved to sin and maybe my enslavement has become quite serious because I practiced it for so long that it's become a life-dominating sin and I need and I need help getting through that. But this happens and I just, I, just, I just say this to you because the Bible gives us hope in this. The Bible gives us hope in this. The world does not The world does not. The Bible does give us hope in this because Christ has come to set us free. And I'm not saying it's an easy process, but I am saying it's a process that starts that process of becoming set free, hoping in Christ. Life-dominating sins like drugs and alcohol and pornography and um, other idols of the heart. I just encourage you, if you need some resources on any of these life-dominating sins, check out our biblical counseling website and we can get some things to you. But the hope I have is Romans 6. Listen to Romans 6. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? His point is going to be, we have died to sin. We no longer have to obey obey that, that slave master called sin. I can now say no. In Christ, I now have the resources to say no. I did not have that before Christ. I now can say no to that slave master when it comes to me. Now I have a new slave master. That's Christ. I say yes to Christ and no to sin. Doesn't mean I do this perfectly. Doesn't mean I don't lapse at times. I'm not saying that. Just understand he came to set us free from sin. That's Romans 6 all over the place. We died to sin. We don't have to say yes to it anymore. We have the resources to face it and turn to Christ and be slaves to him. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. He says in verse 30, they say, you know, so so they might question might be, and I'm just basing this on what they say in verse 35, but the question might be, do you really have the authority, Jesus, to do this? Can you really do this, Jesus? And Jesus says this, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Kind of a proverbial saying, 
possibly that Jesus is referring to here, reminding you again we're in the Roman Empire, two-thirds of the population of the Roman Empire are slaves. Slaves would be brought into a home to teach the children of the slave owner. The slave would have authority over those children for a season, okay? The slave would have authority over the season, over those children for a season. One of those children may be the firstborn who's going to get the whole inheritance of the house. Are you following me? That firstborn could go up to that slave holder, that slave who's, who's his tutor, and say to him, hey, you better be nice to me because one day I'm going to run the show here and I'm going to have the power to set you free. And if you're mean to me, I'm not going to set you free. Now, I'm just talking in human terms there. It's kind of the idea here. You're temporary. I'm going to be here for a long time. I'm the firstborn son. You follow me? Is this making sense? I practiced this a hundred times trying to figure out how I was going to say this exactly because it's kind of a confusing verse. That's what Jesus is saying. I can set you free. I have the authority to set you free. It's my house. I, I could walk into Jerusalem and, dis, and turn over all those tables in the courtyards in Jerusalem in the temple because it's my father's house. I have authority. I have authority. If the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Verse 36. If you're in this house, the son will make you free. Hey, listen. Trust him on that. Just trust him. I don't feel very free today, God. I'm back into it. Yeah, just trust him. He wants it more than you do for you. See, here's what he set us free for, and Charlie said it when he prayed. He set us free from the penalty of sin. I will, not, I will never face judgment for my sin. I deserve it, but I will never face it. Christ absorbed it all for me. He set me free from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. I have been set free from that eternal death. I'm free indeed from the penalty of sin. John 3:16 For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then he saved us from the power of sin. I can say no, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. I have been set free. The power of sin has been broken. That slave master can be told no. I will not listen to you. And then finally, the presence of sin. One day we will be in his presence Free from sin. You know what the best words in the whole Bible are? First John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when, it appear, when he appears, we will be like him. I look forward to that. I look forward to that. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. I look forward to being free from the presence of sin. Best words in the whole Bible. No possibility of sin anymore. He frees us from the penalty and the power and the presence. Okay, let me give you an application. I'm running out of time, but you've got to hear this application. Hey, read your Bible. Read your Bible, Christian. Continue in his word. Christian, read your Bible. Don't just depend on Sunday morning. The fact that I've read it. No, you need it. For the very reasons I gave you. Read your Bible. You, don't, you need a reading plan? Find you one. Listen, here's what I, I do. I, I, I've been reading First Thessalonians for a month. 
almost a month. I read one book of the Bible for a month. Familiar with the book, start to notice trends in the book, words in the book, start noticing things like that. Just read a book of the Bible for one month. Longer books, break it up. But find you chunks of Scripture like that to read. Read the same thing every, every day for a month. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. If you've got a plan, just ignore me, okay? I'm not giving an edict here. I'm just saying, do it. Continue in His Word. How you started is how you need to finish the race. How we start is what we need to continue in. Read it, pray through a psalm or whatever, whatever. There are ways and things. If you need more help, you can talk to your small group leader, talk to your Bible study leader, talk to one of the elders, whatever. We can point you in a direction of something. We're going to take communion. We're going to receive communion. We're going to do communion, okay? Because this reminds us of everything we've been set free from. We've been set free because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Thank you, Father, for this time as we come to this table this morning. We praise you and worship you in Christ's name. Amen.